0: A couple of years ago in Thailand, a coach took his youth soccer team on a little adventure trek, caving. They went down into a cave. Not something I'd ever do, but they thought it would be a great team building, a little fun excursion for these 12 players and their coach. But while they were down in the cave, a monsoon rushed through their region, sending all kinds of water rushing down into the cave and blocking their way out. And so this group of 13 had to find a little rise in the cave to get away from the water where all they could do then was to sit in the dark and wait and hope for rescue. You you may remember this news story from 2018. It took 18 days and the efforts of over 10,000 volunteers to bring this soccer team back up to the surface. And as I I was reading about this ordeal, one of the fascinating things that I I found in the article, it, it talked about the fact that before these 13 men could come back out of the cave, they had to be given special sunglasses because their eyes had grown so accustomed to the darkness that the harsh, bright light of day would potentially blind them once they came back to the real world. And only gradually would they be able to regain their sight as it once was? Now, that's something that I and maybe the rest of us would just kind of take for granted because sunlight is not only very precious to us, but it's necessary. It's just something we know and experience day by day. But it could be blinding to a person who's grown accustomed to living in the dark. And, y'all, it's it's important for us today, Easter Sunday, that we remember something As, as glorious and wonderful as Easter is. The first Easter actually began in total darkness. The first Easter began with Jesus dead and buried, literally shut up in a pitch black tomb. All of Jesus' disciples were left in the dark, completely devastated over the sudden and terrible loss of their leader, their rabbi. And as we'll see today in John chapter 20, The sun has yet to rise on poor Mary Magdalene as she makes her way to the garden tomb to mourn in the dark. Even for us right now, right where we sit today, the scripture tells us that apart from Easter, apart from the resurrection, we remain in the dark. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus only died... But did not rise again, then we are still in our sins, and we are of all people most to be pitied. So it's a safe thing to say that there's a lot riding on Easter Sunday, not only for the original disciples back then, but for us also today. And as we look at John chapter 20 today, my hope is that we'll see this very clear and glorious contrast. That all at once we see that the darkness that was ushered in on Good Friday as Jesus was crucified, that carried over into Saturday as he lay buried in the tomb, but that now gives way to the glorious and blinding light of God's grace and power, both for them and also for us. This is Easter, John chapter 20. Look with me at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Well, every time I come to this Scripture, every single time, I'm amazed by something. It's the fact that Jesus' closest disciples, His very best friends, and even His own family, had no expectation of a resurrection. Jesus had foretold this on multiple occasions. Jesus told His disciples that He was going to suffer, He would die, and on the third day, He would rise again. He told them it was going to happen, and yet, not a single soul, not one, was there at the tomb, ready for His return waiting for him to come to life. Because, y'all, as far as, as, as wonderful as Jesus was to them, in their own minds and hearts, a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah, and there's no other option. As precious as Jesus was to them, as many great things as he did that they saw with their own eyes, surely he can't be the Son of God, and his death is evidence enough because the Son of God cannot die, and certainly he wouldn't die like that in such torturous shame. And so Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb before sunrise. The other Gospels tell us that there were other women who were with her, and they were bringing spices that they had prepared. The only hope they had was that somehow they could get to the body to anoint Jesus' body with spices, which was one of the burial customs of the Jews. They weren't looking for him to be alive. And, of course, even Peter and John, who were, we esteem as some of the greatest disciples, the apostles, right, that we read about that wrote part of the Bible, these great men, where were they? They were back at the house. And John tells us later that they were in the house for fear of being persecuted themselves for their association with Jesus. They weren't expecting to find him alive either. And so when Mary discovers the stone has been rolled away, Her immediate thought is what? Grave robbers. They've taken away the Lord. Whether it was the enemies of Jesus as one final way to shame him and his disciples, or someone simply looking to make some money off of the expensive linen wrappings that were in the tomb and the spices, who knows? But somebody came and took him. That's all she's sure of. So Peter and John, when they receive this news, they hop up and they run down to figure out what's the matter. And John tells us, of course, he makes sure to tell us that he's faster than Peter. Did you notice that? He says it twice that John got there first. For 40 years, I'm sure, after the fact, John was still ribbing his buddy over the fact that he got there fastest, although Peter entered in first, right? So I'm sure that was his comeback. But these two men, they come to the tomb, and what do they find? The linen wrappings have been left behind. The face cloth had been neatly rolled up and set in its own place. And surely Peter and John are thinking, they're thinking, wait a minute, grave robbers wouldn't have left the most valuable thing behind. The linen wrappings, the face cloth, that's what they would have been after. The spices, that's what they would have wanted. The body would have done them no good. Grave robbers couldn't have done this. Now John says in verse 8 that when he saw the tomb and the wrappings and the face cloth that he saw and believed. But immediately after that, he makes a confession of himself and all the disciples. In verse 9, we just read this. It says, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their own homes. They didn't, not only did they not expect a resurrection, but even when they're given the initial evidence, they cannot understand. They can't make sense of this. You know, y'all, if John, I try to make a point of this every year, if John were trying to spin a nice resurrection myth for us, he just wouldn't have written it like this. The story lacks all credibility and believability as a legend. For one, and y'all, we don't like to hear this. Praise God, it's not this way anymore. But for one, it was a woman who was the first eyewitness of the empty tomb. And in the ancient Jewish world, Women were considered second-class citizens. They had no credibility in the larger culture. A woman's testimony was inadmissible in the court of law. Nobody would have believed Mary's story, or taken it at face value. Okay, well Peter and John come, and they see. They're credible, right? But you notice John, of course, he's writing himself into the story as it happened. So this is a, this is first-hand eyewitness testimony. And yet he paints himself and Peter as pretty clueless and, frankly, cowardly. That on Resurrection Sunday, they're in the house hiding. And even after they see the empty tomb, and the wheels are turning here, but they still don't understand, and they go back home. If John were trying to make up a story for believability's sake, he's not really doing a very good job of it. But, of course, this is what we believe, that he's simply recording the way it really happened. And this is, y'all, this is essential for us to get because y'all, uh, resurrection, not just any old resurrection, but the resurrection of Jesus especially, this is the most fantastic claim in all of history. There's nothing more far-fetched than this. And it's not just that it happened. We're saying a person actually rose from the dead. But if it's Jesus who rose from the dead, then we understand what that claim means. It means he really is the Son of God. It means it really is true, all that he said and did, and he is the the one and only Savior of the world, if he's really alive, then it it changes the story for everybody. There's an awful lot riding on Easter, just like we said. And so I just, if we take a step back for just a moment, I want to encourage you all on this. You might be a person that if you're honest with your own heart and mind, you find the resurrection of Jesus a little hard to believe. And if you do, I want you to know today, you're in good company. Jesus' own disciples wouldn't believe it. Even with, when presented with the first obvious piece of evidence, they went back home. They had no category for this. And so it's okay if we struggle with it too. But y'all, all of it changed as the light began to dawn that day. Because we don't celebrate... That the disciples found an empty tomb. What we celebrate is that they actually saw the Lord and they saw him alive. Look with me at verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Y'all, I want to give a few minutes to talk about Mary Magdalene and just how, how absolutely admirable a person she is. Remember, Peter and John, they've seen the empty tomb, and then they went back home. Mary didn't. Mary's got nothing better to do with her time She's going to stay in the garden there. And she's weeping and searching and just hoping, so much so that even when she sees angels sitting in the tomb, it it really doesn't even faze her. Y'all, if you remember various points in the Bible when people encounter angels, they fall down half dead from terror, from amazement. And yet when Mary sees these two angels, it's like she's brushing them aside almost. All she cares about is Jesus. That's her only interest. And even though in Mary's mind, he's still a dead Jesus, he's still dead. She simply wants to know where his body might be because all she wants is to take care of him, to know that his body is taken care of. Now, if we ask this question, what is it about Mary Magdalene, uniquely her, that has her so grief stricken, I mean, almost to the point of hysteria, she's so upset? Why? We don't get a whole lot of detail about this woman in the Scripture, but there's one detail that I think is especially helpful. It comes to us in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8. You don't need to turn there. There's a little place early on in chapter 8 of Luke where Luke says that one of the women who followed Jesus was Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. He doesn't elaborate. He simply moves on. That's the only detail we get. But we really don't need a lot more detail in this case to know something about Mary. That Mary, at one time in her life, was horribly possessed. That she was held captive by and ensnared by the devil, completely shrouded in spiritual darkness. Not just one demon, but seven. And within the Jewish culture that she lived, a person like her would have been totally ostracized, completely pushed outside of respectable society. Demon possession meant that you were out. We can't let a person like that live among us. She's a danger to us. She's a danger to herself. There's a place in Mark where Jesus encounters a man living in a cemetery who was possessed by demons and was constantly gashing himself with rocks, screaming at the top of his lungs. They had chained his body, and yet he was so strong that he had broken the chains that they had bound him with. That's what demon possession looks like in the New Testament. We're not told that about Mary, but we we have a sense of what she might have gone through here. She was absolutely overwhelmed with darkness, and yet one day she encounters a man named Jesus of Nazareth who speaks a word and casts out her demon. And not only that, but he welcomes her in to draw near to him, to be one of his own followers. Jesus forgives all of her sin. He reconciles Mary Magdalene to God. And so by the grace of Jesus, this woman, who in every sense of the word was dead, dead morally, dead spiritually, dead socially, has now suddenly been made alive by the grace of Jesus Christ. She had been given wholeness now and peace hope and joy, acceptance and mercy. How could her life now be any better? But then all at once on Good Friday, everything came crashing down again. The darkness came flooding in for Mary, perhaps now worse than it ever was before. Because Mary, who had been given such grace, had to stand by and helplessly watch Jesus Christ as he was betrayed, falsely accused, convicted, beaten, mocked, and then crucified. He was nailed to the cross right in front of her eyes. John tells us she was there. The one who had given her so much life was now dead. The light of the world had gone out. It shouldn't be hard for us to imagine then why Mary Magdalene, Would be so overcome with grief and despair. But Easter Sunday's a new day. Easter's a new day. Look at verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Now, just real quickly here, Mary is speaking to the risen Christ, but she doesn't know it. She doesn't recognize him. And there's a spiritual reality at work here. We see it in other parts of the gospel. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, two men are walking on the road. Jesus walks up alongside them, risen from the grave, but they don't know it's him until he reveals himself to them over dinner. I think the same thing is happening here. Mary sees Jesus, but she's not yet sure who it is. She thinks he's the gardener. And so she asks him, if you've taken him, tell me where he is. I'll go get him. But look at verse 16. Jesus then said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, teacher. Y'all, with with a single word, Jesus opens Mary's eyes. With a word, He overcomes all of her darkness with His divine light. And what's the glorious word Jesus speaks to her? Right there in the garden as she weeps, He simply says, Mary. He speaks her name. And y'all, that's more precious perhaps than we realize. In John chapter 10, Jesus spoke of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And there in John 10, Jesus says, The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls his sheep by name. There's something very personal going on here in John chapter 20, outside the tomb. Jesus could have said in that moment, Hey you. Or he could have said, Hey, it's me. It's Jesus. But instead he says, Mary. Mary. He speaks her name. And from that moment on, nothing was ever the same. And y'all, I just I want to encourage us in this. Y'all, it's, it's one thing for us to say, I believe the resurrection is true. I certainly hope we do, but it's a deeper thing, and and to me, I, I hope we'll see this also today, more than just acknowledging that it happened, is that we would begin to understand what it means, what it means for us, because if Jesus died and remained dead, then we're all gathered here, and the best we can do today is to honor his memory by reading his words and doing our best to imitate his example. We can't pray to him. He's dead. We can't know him. He's gone. But y'all, if Jesus is risen, if he's alive, it means we can actually know him personally and presently and we can be known by him. If Jesus is alive, it means that all of his promises that he's given to us really are true. It means that all of our sins really are forgiven. If Jesus is alive, if your trust is in him, it means that you no longer walk in the darkness, but you have the light of life because your Savior is alive. And y'all, that is a deeply personal grace. When you meet Jesus face-to-face one day, the most famous, most glorious person in all the universe, when he looks at you, he won't come up to you like you're at a cocktail party and say, hey, chief, nice to meet you. He'll say, Kyle. He'll say, Jared. He'll say, Karen. He knows you. He knows his sheep by name. And he calls us by name. That is the privilege of a risen Savior. We no longer walk in darkness, but we have the light of life. That's good news. Well, when Mary sees Jesus now alive, what's she going to do? She does what any of us would do in that moment. She grabs him and she holds on tight. And when she grabs Jesus and clings to him, Jesus actually has a strange word for her. We see this in verse 17. It reads a little oddly. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now Mary is clinging to Jesus. And in my own imagination, I feel like she's probably down on the ground grabbing him around the ankles or the calves. Um, probably what Mary's thinking here is is understandable. I lost you once, Jesus. I will not lose you again. I'm never letting go. And yet Jesus says to her, Don't cling to me, don't hold on so tightly. And that does read a little strangely. Is, is Jesus shooing her away in this in this very precious moment? No. And and I, I hope we'll recall this, Jesus has specifically chosen to reveal himself to Mary first. He didn't show up at the tomb thinking Peter and John would be there, and well, Mary's there, I guess I'll, you know, what else? I don't want her to see me. Uh, No, he chose for Mary to be the one. He's not rebuking her. He's not upset with her, but he is trying to communicate. I think he's communicating something very precious. Don't cling to me right now. Don't hold on so tight. Why not? Because today's a new day. It really is a new day. You can't lose me again. You only thought you had lost me before. You certainly can't lose me from this moment forward. And in fact, even though I will soon ascend, meaning I will return back to the Father, Mary, you're going to have more of Jesus, not less. You're going to experience more of His grace and His presence in the days ahead, not less. Something that we come to understand. Because after he ascended to heaven, he sent the very Spirit of God to indwell those who believe. We get more of him. And so when Jesus says, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God, he's not being redundant. He's communicating to us that there's something new that's taken place here. Jesus is telling us what the resurrection now means, not just for Mary and the disciples, but also for us. God is not just Jesus' Heavenly Father, but yours and mine by faith. And we are now ushered into all the privileges, all the gracious things that are bestowed upon God's children because we now are declared sons and daughters of the Most High. He is not only Jesus' Father, but now also yours because He is alive. We have life in His name. We belong to God. It's his adopted children. It's a new day. And besides all that, Mary, you've got a job to do. You can't hold on to me because you've got work to do. You've got to go and tell my brethren the good news. Mary is going to be the first eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, and that's exactly what she was. I said this earlier, how the first Easter really began in utter darkness. In those early twilight hours, there was nothing but death and grief. There was nothing but fear and disillusionment and lostness and despair. That's all the disciples were left with. That's all the world was really left with in that moment, seemingly. But then the light dawned. Then the sun rose, literally. A light both blinding and glorious, strong enough to expel the darkness once and for all, forever. It's the light of a risen Savior. And I want to encourage you, wherever you're coming from this morning, that this grace, this resurrection life is not limited to only a select few, the best and brightest, the most moral religious among us. Y'all, if that were true, Mary Magdalene would not be part of the story. And I I want us to take heart to this, that Mary Magdalene, the first eyewitness of the resurrection, the one sent with the good news to Jesus' brothers, she had no business being a part of this story. Not not through the lenses that we tend to look through. This demon-possessed woman, this woman who is left out of all respectable society, barred from the synagogue and the place of worship, uh, uh, outside the bounds of God's love and mercy from our perspective perhaps, but not from his. God loved her and brought her in and now he sends her out by his grace to share the good news. The grace of God is strong enough, is great enough to save anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. The Johns and the Peters, the Mary Magdalene's. Whether you're very proud of your reputation or ashamed of it, it makes no difference at all because we do not look to ourselves to be saved. We look only to the man on the cross and the living Savior who came out of the tomb. He alone is our trust and he's got enough grace for us all. And so my hope for us this morning is that we'll do more than just acknowledge this. It's one thing to believe that the resurrection happened, but my hope, deeper than that, is that we will actually receive today the risen Savior himself. We're not here to acknowledge a bare fact of reality. We're here to come to know and to be known by a person. The Son of God who is alive and well. The Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep and now calls us by name. The crucified and buried Savior, yes, yes but also the one who rose again, conquering once and for all the power of sin and death and the grave. So that now everyone who looks upon Jesus Christ and proclaims his death and resurrection as our truest and only hope, we can say today's a new day. Nothing is ever the same. The Apostle Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for God who said... Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Easter Sunday is a day of brilliant, blinding light. And for all those who live in the darkness, we may now walk in the light of life. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning for my own heart, for all of us, that you would grant us the humility to confess that we don't belong here. I don't belong in this story because I am a sinner in need of grace. And it must be a grace that comes outside of me. I, I have not and I cannot earn your acceptance. I cannot earn my way in to your love and favor. None of us can. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that the glory of Easter would be more precious to us than ever. Knowing, Lord, that we brought nothing to the table here And You demand nothing of us that we've got to produce or provide to fill in the gap. You've done everything. Lord, You sent Your own Son into a world of sinners, into a world of darkness, that He might be the light of the world. And He bore our sins in His body on the cross, dying in our place, He was buried, and then he rose again to eternal, glorious, incorruptible life, never to suffer or die again. And all of it now, Lord, we receive as a free gift of your own mercy and love and grace. Father, will you help us this morning to see Not only that Easter is, but also what it means. That we worship a living Savior, one who knows us and calls us by name, and has granted to us the very same resurrection life now promised to those who simply trust him. We will share in his glory forever because you have loved us this richly and freely. Father, as we see it, I pray we would savor it and delight in it this morning. Easter is a new day. Nothing is ever the same. Thanks be to you, God, and to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his awesome name we pray. Amen.